Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 40, Chain Gang, in which we continue to explore how scientists understood polymers in the 1920s and 1930s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Supporters of this podcast can download a supplemental sheet with some diagrams of molecular structures. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. In a previous episode on the first polymers, one of the last developments was bakelite, a polymer of phenol and formaldehyde. Before we move ahead into the 1920s, I want to mention one more of the early polymers, the urea formaldehyde resin. Here the monomer is urea instead of phenol as in bakelite, somehow linked together with formaldehyde. Urea formaldehyde was first made unknowingly by Hülzer and Bernhard Tollens in 1884, and I say unknowingly because they never realized that they created a polymer. The substance wasn't considered important as a polymer for over 30 years until Hans John in Czechoslovakia patented this resin in 1919. It's currently used for glues and some molded objects. Again, chemists did not really understand what polymers were in 1920. The most common idea about the true nature of polymers was from chemist Thomas Graham, who promoted his association theory in 1861, casting polymers as colloids. That is, some peculiar or secondary force was holding smaller molecules together in an association. This association caused scientists to measure the molecular weights of polymers as very large. Then German chemist Hermann Staudinger was researching rubber, a serious concern of chemists for many decades. In 1920, though, he published a paper in the journal Berichte der Deutschen Chemischen Gesellschaft called Über Polymerisation. Staudinger proposed that rubber and other biochemical polymers were actually long chains of smaller units connected by real chemical bonds, the same bonds that we've talked about, as per Gilbert Lewis, pairs of electrons. Some people like to think of this as something like a long chain of paperclips. Staudinger's idea was pretty much rejected by most chemists, largely because chemical bonds weren't yet quite understood. We still have a decade to go before Linus Pauling promotes quantum electron bonding. Staudinger coined the term macromolecule in 1922, meaning large molecule, to describe rubber, cellulose, proteins, and starches. In fact, modern terminology tends toward the word macromolecule or polymer molecule to describe one single molecule of the substance, while polymer itself means the material. Staudinger used rubber as the model macromolecule. Based on some chemical experiments on rubber, plus measuring the viscosity of the chemicals, he insisted that rubber is a long-chain molecule. But his proposal was still rejected. 
Our controversial comrade, Fritz Haber, organized a conference in 1926 with a debate between the macromolecularists and the aggregateists. At that conference, another chemist, the Austrian Hermann Mark, gave a talk about X-ray crystallography of polymers, in which he concluded that polymers might be possible. Not long after that, Mark did some more calculations which supported the macromolecular hypothesis. The Nobel Prize winner in 1927, Heinrich Wieland, told him, quote, Dear colleague, drop the idea of large molecules. Organic molecules with a molecular weight higher than 5,000 do not exist. Purify your products, such as rubber, then they will crystallize and prove to be low molecular compounds. But then, a Swedish Nobel laureate in chemistry, known for his work on colloids, Theodor Svedberg, or Te for short, built an ultracentrifuge. His first attempt reached acceleration up to 7,000 Gs at 12,000 RPM. By 1926, he was able to reach 100,000 Gs at 42,000 RPM. The fantastic speeds meant Svedberg could separate out all sorts of chemical components in a liquid, including these large biological molecules. Merely waiting for them to settle out of solution was incredibly tedious, so his rotational technique was a boon to chemists. Svedberg's first test molecule was hemoglobin, which he figured out was a single large molecule made up of four subunits, and showed the true polymeric nature of a biological molecule. At this time, there was a dispute between Staudinger and Mark. Staudinger insisted that macromolecules were inflexible rod-shaped molecules, while Mark insisted that the chains could bend, flex, and curl into coils. Eventually, Mark was shown to be correct, and much of modern polymer and biochemical science is built on the flexing, bending, and coiling of polymer chains. Soon chemists began realizing that macromolecules were real and micelles were not their true nature. The association theory declined and vanished within a decade. Staudinger finally got his Nobel Prize in 1953. We now turn to a large American company, but we start once again back in the late 18th century. Eleuther Irénée Dupont was Antoine Lavoisier's assistant in his gunpowder laboratories in France, gaining expertise in gunpowder quality and manufacture. The French Revolution followed, and Dupont was generally pro-regime change. However, he did assist the escape of King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette in 1792, and opposed guillotining enemies of the state. His revolutionary political fortunes were therefore tainted, and eventually in 1799 he fled France and set sail for the USA, to Rhode Island in particular. Eventually he returned to his gunpowder roots, got some French financing, and founded E.I. Dupont de Nemours and Company in 1801. The company bought property along the Brandywine Creek in northern Delaware that held the remains of a fire-destroyed spinning mill. By 1804, the firm was making gunpowder. 
By the way, you can visit and tour the original site of the Gunpowder Works at the Hagley Museum in Delaware. After a century of gunpowder and expansion into gun cotton and nitroglycerin, in the early 1900s, the DuPont Company expanded into a variety of other chemical products, particularly commercial materials. By the late 1920s, DuPont hired a chemist named Wallace Carruthers to do some basic organic chemistry research. And Wallace was looking at this controversial new polymer theory of macromolecules. Americans, unlike the Europeans, were a bit more favorably disposed to the macromolecular idea. He decided to attempt to synthesize a macromolecule with a molecular weight of more than 5,000. He had no luck through 1929, so DuPont hired his manager, Elmer Bolton, in January 1930 to get practical work out of the research. We talked a bit about natural and synthetic rubber already. And DuPont's first success was in April 1930, when one of Carruthers' underlings, Arnold Collins, made a chemical called chloroprene, a butadiene with a chlorine atom hanging off the middle, to polymerize into a rubber-like material. This is the first actual synthetic rubber, originally called duprene, now called neoprene. DuPont and Carruthers were off and running. Their next success was a macromolecule called polyester, molecular weight of 12,000. With such a high molecular weight, DuPont could stretch the polymer into fibers, making an artificial silk. A polyester has a repeating ester unit, that is, an organic bit connected to a double-bonded oxygen and an oxygen atom in the chain itself. However, DuPont never investigated this product much further, because of other products we shall talk about shortly. By 1934, DuPont and Carruthers had their next success. They used diamines as the monomer to make polyamide. This macromolecule was more stable than polyester and tougher mechanically because there are crystalline domains. Here we take a slight detour into what makes the crystalline areas in a polyamide. Back in 1919, an undergraduate working in Gilbert Lewis's laboratory named Maurice Huggins was trying to explain some properties of diacetic acid, a four-carbon chain with two double-bonded oxygens hanging off, plus a hydroxyl group at one end. Diacetic acid undergoes what's called tautomerization a reaction between two similar forms of the same molecule where both forms are present. For diacetic acid, one of the double-bonded oxygens can snatch a hydrogen from the main carbon chain and become a hydroxyl group. Chemists call the two-double-bonded oxygen form the keto, K-E-T-O, form, and the form with one converted into a hydroxyl group, the enol E-N-O-L form. It turns out that the keto form is more stable in polar solvents like water, and the enol form is a bit more stable in nonpolar solvents. Huggins was trying to figure out why this could be. In his undergraduate thesis, he proposed a weird kind of bond 
where a hydrogen atom bonded to an electron-grabbing atom can form a weak bond to another molecule's electron-grabbing part. This idea was fleshed out a year later by other University of California researchers Wendell Latimer and Worth Rodebusch. Let's use the example of water itself. Recall that the hydrogens in water have a bit of a positive charge because the oxygen atom grabs more electron for itself, becoming more negative. So now the slightly positively charged hydrogen can attract another slightly negatively charged oxygen in another water molecule wandering by. This attraction between two water molecules, a hydrogen in one and an oxygen in the other, is a hydrogen bond. Although Latimer and Rodebusch never used the phrase in their 1920 paper. You can imagine a network of these hydrogen bonds cohesively holding together water, and it does. Chemists believe that water has a higher boiling point precisely because the molecules grab onto each other more than if no hydrogen bonds existed. Let's also be clear: this hydrogen bonding idea did not catch on in the chemical world immediately. One professor reading Huggins's original thesis remarked. As Huggins recounted later, quote, "Huggins, there are several interesting ideas in this paper, but there is one you'll never get chemists to believe: the idea that a hydrogen atom can be bonded to two other atoms at the same time." Unquote. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior. With your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Irving Langmuir was the first person to publicly comment on the hydrogen bond, but offered another explanation in 1921. The competing idea in the 1920s was that water was made of a mixture of a variety of molecules based on the fundamental OH2 unit called the hydrone. Bonding was between the oxygen atoms, not hydrogens. Neville Sidgwick, whom I mentioned regarding Lewis structures of inorganic compounds, Promoted the hydrogen bond in his 1927 book, *The Electronic Theory of Valency*, but he called it coordinated hydrogen. Linus Pauling himself first used the term hydrogen bond in 1928. A detailed discussion of the early history of hydrogen bonding appears in Dennis Quain's paper from the Bulletin for the History of Chemistry in 1990. Now we go back to diacetic acid. In the enol form, the hydrogen on the hydroxyl group leans over and attracts the double-bonded oxygen group, which is a bit negatively charged. The whole area of the molecule forms a hexagonal shape, almost like a benzene ring. Hydrogen bonds can happen between different parts of one molecule. But now imagine a macromolecule with amine groups hanging off all over the place. 
Like oxygen with hydrogen making a polar bond, nitrogen and hydrogen can create a polar bond, which occurs in polyamide. This hydrogen hanging off the nitrogen can attract double bonded oxygens in adjacent molecules, giving structural integrity to the material. Hence, the extra stability imparted to polyamides caused by hydrogen bonding between molecules. This hydrogen bonding phenomenon appears in many, many macromolecules, both synthetic polymers and natural polymers like cellulose. We will encounter hydrogen bonds later on in the 20th century again, and suddenly the idea will spread. For now, hydrogen bonding is considered a rare anomaly. Simultaneously with DuPont in the USA, the Germans were looking at rubber, the standard polymer of the day, and worried about sources in case of political problems. Research done by the infamous IG Farben conglomerate tried the butadiene polymer the Russians invented a couple of decades earlier with efforts to improve it. IG Farben was able to catalyze the polymerization of the butadiene monomer using sodium metal. It's not cheap and it's not great, but it kind of works. The Germans named their product Buna, BU from butadiene and NA from natrium, the German word for sodium, and IG Farben received a patent on it in 1926. By 1933, the government instituted a four year plan to avoid importation of goods from other countries so that Germany could become self-sufficient, and that included rubber. This law forced everyone to use Buna as the official rubber for industry and commerce. But it's not latex, and it's not so good. Then Walter Bach and Eduard Chunkur at IG Farben substituted 25% of the butadiene into styrene, so the product is cheaper, and they called it Buna S for styrene. It has much better wear resistance even than latex, but it's not compatible with the vulcanization process then in use. You can add a softener, but that lowers the rubber quality, and yet industry in Germany was forced to use Buna S. The following year, in 1934, Chunkur and Erich Konrad used acrylonitrile instead of styrene, and it's pretty decent stuff, being now oil-resistant. IG Farben called it Buna N, and Germany became largely rubber self-sufficient. Buna N is also the ultimate ancestor of most of our modern synthetic rubbers. Initial production of Buna N was made at the new Bunawerke GmbH Schkopau in 1937. The German abbreviation GmbH stands for Gesellschaft mit beschränkter Haftung, which is equivalent to LLC in the USA and Limited in the UK. IG Farben, as I mentioned in a previous episode, was in close cooperation with the Nazis during World War II. The company constructed a Buna plant near the Polish town of Oswiecim, better known to the world in German as Auschwitz. A labor concentration camp there was Monowitz, and the Nazis forced the enslaved laborers in Monowitz to work in the Buna factory. 
Hence, I.G. Farben was complicit in crimes against humanity. Now, let's go back to DuPont in the 1930s. Wallace Carruthers' research group was working hard on new polymers, particularly via esterification reactions, which produced water as a reaction byproduct. They started using a new piece of apparatus called a molecular still, which runs the reaction under a vacuum instead of air, and this vacuum also removed the water byproduct. One of Carruthers' associates, Julian Hill, created a polyester inside this still and put a glass rod inside the hot mass. He stretched the mass, which he called a festoon of fiber. Experiments showed that the fibers had a molecular weight of 12,000, really high, and the fibers got stronger and stretchy when pulled more. This new process came to be called cold drawing and orients the macromolecules in a linear direction, creating the first fully synthetic fibers. After several years, the laboratory returned to working on polyamides, making all sorts of polymers, many with interesting but not particularly useful properties of a commercial sort. However, on February 28, 1935, the chemists used two organic monomers, adipic acid and hexamethylenediamine, to create a most fascinating product which they called Fiber 66 based on each monomer containing six carbon atoms. After the fiber was cold-drawn, it was elastic, tough, and inert to water or even many other solvents, and it had a high melting point. It was useful. The commercialization took three years. Adipic acid was a German product, and hexamethylenediamine wasn't commercially available at all, so engineers had to create viable syntheses for these starting monomers. They also had to design appropriate perforated extrusion mechanisms for cold drawing. The whole project was secret until DuPont got a patent in September 1938. Meanwhile, the marketing division had to invent a brand name for the polymer. DuPont suggested no run, but had to backtrack because it really could unravel occasionally. Then the firm tried Neuron, N-U-R-O-N, but that sounded too much like neurons in your brain, and maybe a patent medicine to calm your nerves, so that was canned. Then DuPont tried N-I-L-O-N, but how do you really pronounce it? They finalized the name as Nylon. N-Y-L-O-N. DuPont introduced nylon to the public at the New York World's Fair in 1939. A limited release of nylon stockings was made in October 1939 in Wilmington, where DuPont was headquartered, and all 4,000 pairs were sold out in three hours. The product was a huge success. During World War II, nylon production shifted to parachutes. Immediately after the war, the public expected nylon to reappear, but it couldn't, so there were fights in shops over the limited number of stockings available, now called the Nylon Riots. There is a sad part of the nylon story. 
Wallace Carruthers was suffering from clinical depression, which gradually worsened during the early 1930s. He was occasionally asked to speak publicly about new polymer research, but it gave him intense anxiety. DuPont's shift from originally pure research to commercially viable research also upset him. He was simultaneously having an affair with a married woman, which irritated his parents. Just before Fiber 6-6 was discovered, Carruthers secretly checked himself into a psychiatric clinic in Baltimore, and no one, either at home or work, could find him. Eventually, he was released and returned to DuPont's work. In 1936, he married and was elected to the National Academy of Sciences as the first industrial organic chemist, but he was even more depressed and checked into a Philadelphia clinic. By 1937, he committed suicide using cyanide. Carruthers never got to see the instant success that nylon was. The overall point in this episode is that by the 1930s, chemists were trying out all sorts of small molecules as monomers and actually coming up with amazing new commercial products that changed modern society forever. In our next episode, we lay some groundwork for environmental chemistry. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry Podcast.